0: This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. And I know this personally as I use Squarespace for my website and find it so easy to use with plenty of great templates to choose from to make it look super engaging and professional even for a technophobe like me. And if you need any more encouragement, here are some of the amazing things Squarespace offer. You can start a completely personalized website with the new guided design system, Squarespace Blueprint AI. You can also sell your products and services with an online store. From hand-knitted decorations to digital content or services, Squarespace has the tools you need to start selling online. Squarespace supports entrepreneurship by helping you to easily manage your clients and invoices in one streamlined workflow. Head to squarespace.com forward slash fail 10. That's fail 1010 one for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code fail 10 to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Rob Delaney is a comedian, actor and writer. He grew up in Massachusetts, studied musical theatre in New York and was one of the first stand-ups to share his material on social media with Rolling Stone magazine, naming him one of the funniest people on Twitter. It was on Twitter that he first met Sharon Horgan, with whom he went on to create the hit Channel 4 sitcom, Catastrophe. Delaney and his family moved to London and the show became an instant hit. The story about a couple who discover they're pregnant after a six-night fling, get married and make a go of family life together, is so recognisable to any harassed parent or spouse that it sometimes appeared more documentary than drama, an impression heightened by the fact that Horgan and Delaney's characters are called Sharon and Rob. Catastrophe ran for four series and won a BAFTA. Delaney went on to have roles in Deadpool 2 and Bombshell. But although his professional career was in the ascendant, Delaney and his wife Leah faced a private loss of excruciating magnitude when their beloved son Henry was diagnosed with a malignant brain tumour. He received extensive treatment, but in January 2018, Henry died at the age of two and a half. Delaney's memoir of this time, A Heart That Works, is published today, It is an astonishing, honest account of the darkest possible human experience, the story of what happens when your child dies and of everything you discover about life in the process. Maybe it's because I write and perform for a living that I can't help but try to share or communicate the biggest, most seismic event that has happened to me, Delaney writes. The truth is, despite the death of my son, I still love people. And I genuinely believe, whether it's true or not, that if people felt a fraction of what my family felt and still feels, they would know what this life and this world are really about. Rob Delaney, welcome to How to
1: Fail. Thank you so much for having me, Elizabeth. It's good to see you.
0: It's good to see you too. Thank you for doing me the honor of coming on this podcast. I wanted to start by asking how, how you are today.
1: I'm doing okay, thank you. I just went for a nice swim, and that always starts the day off nice. It's cold out now, so that's my favorite kind of swimming. But I'm also, you know, pacing myself emotionally because this book coming out into the world is such a massive thing, you know? I'm thinking about our son, Henry, constantly, and I am sharing him with the world. And so that comes at a cost. There are, of course, also benefits to it. I get to meet other bereaved parents and siblings. And that is a wonderful thing. It's why I wrote the book. But right now, there's a lot coming out of me. And, you know, if people read the book and like it, then there'll be stuff coming back to me. But in the meantime, I do feel like I'm being sort of eaten by kind people who don't want to hurt me, but they're eating me nonetheless. I feel like that might not actually sound crazy. I feel like, you know, you're nodding. And so,
0: you know, no, I'm totally nodding.
1: Yeah. So that's how I feel. I feel like I've done the right thing and it hurts and that's okay.
0: Yeah. It is a viscerally extraordinary book, the account of it. And I'm sure it will be greatly beneficial to other bereaved parents. And the thing that struck me most about it was its brutal honesty. But I imagine Mm -hmm. that you felt you couldn't be any other way. I really appreciated hearing that you don't think things happen for a reason. How could you when this horrendous thing has happened, and I appreciated hearing that. So could you give us your philosophy of life post this event, post-Henry dying?
1: You know, the title of the book, A Heart That Works, you'll see when you open the book, is that that's the second half of a quote by Juliana Hatfield, a wonderful singer-songwriter from Boston that I grew up listening to. And the full quote is, a heart that hurts is a heart that works. And that really is my philosophy. Life, as the Buddha said, or as the Buddha discovered rather, and elucidated so clearly, life is suffering. And if we're born into human form, we will suffer. and There will be pain. You know, we spend a lot of time running away from that especially in the modern world, especially in British culture and American culture, which raised me, you know, as we get older and suffer more, we hopefully learn the only way out is through. And so why does my heart hurt? Because it works. (laughs) And the funny thing is, is when you have some of these more somber realizations that might not be pleasant to accept, then after that, you can be a more genuine happy I believe, but Mm. you do have to really grapple with the price of admission to these bodies and this world.
0: You describe emotion as being like a rainbow. Will you tell us more Mm. about that?
1: Sure. Yeah, I'm glad that just kind of spilled out of me at one point, especially with grief, you know, with intense emotions. I think it's a good idea to listen to the things that just spill out of you without any thought or preparation. The rainbow of emotion was kind of a metaphor that I came up with or recognized, I guess, which is that, you know, we all have all these emotions. I don't know which color corresponds to which emotion. That doesn't matter. That's up to the individual, I guess. But when our son died, we either had put into our rainbow or we discovered the truth of a color that's in all of our rainbows that we might not see yet. I don't know. But I said, you know, we've still got the red, orange, and red through purple and all that. But then we have a new band of black in our rainbow. And the reason that I mentioned that was because there's a whole new, you know, suite of emotions and feelings that we feel. All the other colors are still there. We still laugh. We still get excited. We still get passionate. We still get angry. We still get, you know, small-minded and vengeful and... (laughs) focus on the trees instead of the forest. We've got a new thing that in my family that we feel and can't ignore, but the other stuff is all there too. So yeah, the reason I started thinking that way and talking about it was because people say like, well, do you, do you still, is there still happiness in your life? Yeah, of course there is sadness. Definitely anger. Yep. Excitement, you know, all that stuff is still there and then something new and massive and huge and frequently painful It doesn't crowd everything else out permanently. In the beginning, of course, it does. But it's not forever.
0: Please, could I ask you, if you don't mind, to talk about what Henry was like?
1: Oh, I would love to talk about that. So in the beginning, before he started to show symptoms of having a brain tumour, he was the third of three boys. We had a boy, then another boy two years later, not even two years later, and then another two years later came Henry. So he was basically born into a zoo and his approach was to just be very sweet and lovable and magnetically attractive. So he was a very calm, smiley baby that just drew you to him. That was really lovely. So he had a unique personality out of the gate. Yeah. So we just, love this. just, we're crazy about him. And so were his older brothers and anybody else. It was just wonderful. He had the most gorgeous blue eyes and I'm probably, Biased, but I've put pictures. There's pictures of him that you can look at. His eyes are, I think, more beautiful than your average. I'm not saying the rest of them, You know, you can. It's up to you. (laughs) But his eyes were such a wonderful. They had dark blue and light blue in them, and like webbing in the cornea. Like he had weird, hauntingly beautiful eyes that even as a baby we were like Jesus. Just wanted to stare into them. And then he got sick, and that was terrifying. You know, to watch a baby lose weight because they can't keep food down, you're in a panic. So we're going from doctor to doctor, hospital to hospital, and specialists, and trying to figure it out. And a tumor is hard to recognize in a small child. One special symptom that I kind of like to talk about, just in case anybody ever witnesses this, if it can help them figure it out a little faster, is the effortless vomiting. Elizabeth, when you vomited last night, there was retching, you know, and, and, oh God, and oh, here it comes, you know, and, you know, and that's what happens when I, when I vomit later, that's how I'll do it. Well, I know, (laughs) but if you have something in your head crowding space and it pushes on your emetic center, the vomit just, it's just up and out. There's no warning or discomfort. So that was like the weird symptom. And one older doctor who I think just from being old And having seen a lot more kids was like, he he just said, you know, let me ask you something. When he vomits, is it effortless? And I said, you know, yeah, now that I think about it, yeah, it is. And he's like, oh, shit. And then we knew what it was quickly a few days later after the MRI. Then he was just... You know, it was like a hand grenade blew up in the back of his head when they did the surgery and wonderful doctors doing a great job. But if you've got to get a malignant tumor off of a brainstem, you're going to damage cranial nerves. The brainstem is going to be disturbed. So he awoke from surgery with disabilities. He was unable to swallow. We all swallow like a liter or a liter and a half of saliva each day unconsciously. If you can't do that, you'll aspirate and get pneumonia and die. So he had to have a, a tracheostomy. A tracheostomy is incredibly difficult to take care of, especially in a little kid. So he had that, and then his motor skills were cut more than in half. And so he had to relearn how to do all the things he'd been learning to do in the first year of his life. So he was quite disabled. But he the tumor was in the back of his head, so his frontal lobe, you know, his enjoyment of Mr. Tumble and playing silly tricks on us and nurses and having fun with his brothers and his desire to communicate through language, which he learned sign language. Forgive me, Makaton, quite quickly. Makaton is like a speech technology. It's not technically sign language, but it's signs and words at the same time. And it's incredibly helpful for young kids with disabilities and for their parents to learn. And so he was so hungry to communicate and funny and mischievous and a delight. So he was very, very interesting and a pleasure to be with for the second and third, almost, you know, he didn't make it to three, but I mean, I just loved waking up every morning and seeing him and kissing him and playing with him and helping with his physical therapy and all that stuff and doing the myriad care things we had to do for him and had to learn how to do, which were quite difficult. So, yeah, he was a wonderful, wonderful kid and personality. So, yeah, that's a little bit. That's the tiniest little bit about Henry.
0: Thank you, Rob. It's so beautiful to hear about him. And I know that he was the first person you told that you and your wife were expecting a baby and that he would be a big brother. Uh That's a beautiful passage in the book.
1: Yeah, But like a lot of two-year-olds, he wasn't like, wow, this is so profound. You know, he was like, oh, great. Oh, cool. Yeah. Exciting. But yeah, he knew. He was the first one.
0: (laughs) During this trauma, you were writing and filming Catastrophe. Uh And your character in Catastrophe gets increasingly intense and almost sort of angry towards the end of the final two series. And I wondered if that was a reflection in some way of what you were going through.
1: Oh, yeah, without question. Series three was written and shot with Henry in the hospital, and then series four was written and shot after he died. So in three and four, yeah, those scripts are suffused with a lot of anger and fear, which I think are incredibly good building blocks for comedy so i am really grateful that there was an existing framework in my life and an existing creative project where stuff could go and would fit and make sense in a story so i think three and four probably would not have been as good if like real life hadn't come a calling in a violent, aggressive manner, it'd be better if Henry were alive and three and four sucked. (laughs) But I am grateful that the career that I have had sort of a clothes horse that I could hang stuff on, you know? Mm.
0: Before I move on to your failures, I wanted to ask you about this, Moment in time where you describe in the book Rachel, one of Henry's carers, her response mm-hmm. to being told that Henry's cancer yeah. had returned yeah. and that it was yeah. fatal. And for yeah. people who haven't yet read the book, because it's only out today, mm-hmm. can you describe her reaction and why that was important for you?
1: So I took her aside and told her that Henry's tumor had returned and that it would kill him and that there was not further options for trying to stop it, she immediately just went, Oh, Jesus Christ, no. Oh, God, no. But louder than that, I don't want to ruin your hearing. You know, she just was like screaming, Jesus Christ, oh, God, no. You know, like she'd been punched in the stomach. It was the best. It was so much better than... You know, whatever, our peer group who would be like, oh, oh, you know, tragedy and oh goodness, you know, and it was so naked and raw. And I just felt like, thank you for saying what's happening inside of me and giving it voice, you beautiful, glorious human being. That's what I want to hear. If I know someone now and they don't know about Henry, you know, I meet somebody some years later and it gets to the point where I tell going to die. I would rather they be like, fuck, what? Are you serious? How? You know, and ask like pointed questions. How? Why did he die? How? You know, not, oh, I'm so, oh goodness. I can't even imagine. Fuck off. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, don't fuck off. <laughs> you know, I'm just saying it's it's okay to have a messy, loud, bodily response. That's, that's going to make the person telling you that's going to make their day. So that was great. And I remember going and telling my wife about that. And she was like, yeah, rock on, Rachel. That's what we want to hear. And so that was very special and very educational for me.
0: And for the rest of us, thank you for sharing that. Because I think possibly the worst thing anyone can do is not say anything. But if you are going to say something, reach for the swear word rather than the platitude.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So, we are going to move on to your failures. Great. But not without my acknowledging how profoundly appreciative I am of you talking to me in that way about Henry. Thank you.
1: Oh, hey, my pleasure. And I tried to pick failures that would like dovetail with this. So it wouldn't be like a one show transition where they're like, and now there's a flood in (laughs) Hampshire where a bunch of rubber duckies uh, (laughs) have escaped from a truck, you know, whatever.
0: (laughs) Yes, I know. I I mean, it is still a little bit of a step change. So I apologize for that. But I'm super intrigued by each of these failures and what you're going to say about them. Great. And your first one is that you got kicked out of an improv group at 26. And you said to me, literally motivates me to this day. What happened, Rob Delaney?
1: I improvised at the Improv Olympic in Los Angeles, which is no longer there. The Improv Olympic in Chicago is where the Upright Citizens Brigade came from, who produced such luminaries as Amy Poehler, Matt Walsh, and lots of them, Tina Fey, and a tiny group of amazing people. So I was so crazy about improv and really loved it, and went through their whole training program and started my own shows and would go there. Every weekend night, hoping to somebody would like not show up so I could go be in a show. And I was just crazy mm. about it. And then I got put on like a house team. It was actually my second one that I'd been on. And after some weeks together, maybe a few months, one of the members asked me out to breakfast. And it was the only member who I was actually like friends with. She said to me, She said, the group has come to a decision. That I disagree with, but because I'm your friend, I wanted to be the one who told you they don't want you in the group anymore. The rationale was that in an improv group, they, I believe, felt that I was violating one of the more cardinal sins of being a bit more controlly and showboaty And trying to be in too many scenes and stuff like that. So it's an okay reason to not want someone in your group. But I think maybe they could have said, hey, here's an idea. We feel that you, you know, they could have given me a double secret probation or a regular probation or just spoken to me and said, because I was just like a puppy dog. I was so excited and so passionate about it. As demonstrated by the fact that years later, I'm the only one of those like eight or nine people who does comedy, except for the woman who told me. She's a very successful show creator, writer, and runner. So the only one who had the strength, compassion, whatever to tell me is the only other person who is also making a living doing this because. She's so good at it and so passionate about it. But when that happened, I was like, oh, I guess I've been kicked out of comedy forever. That's it. Meanwhile, these are just like kids in their 20s who don't know what they're doing. Not that I did. That's not, I'm not denigrating them for that. But I was so hurt and so horrified. I was like, I guess, well, that's it. The doors of comedy are closed to me. So I really stopped for a while and I got a job in internet marketing and with benefits, you know, because you have to get a job to get health insurance in America. And I started to study for my real estate license and like all these things that I was like, I guess this is, and I tried to tell myself, like, no, it's okay. This is what I want to do. And then, the, like, a couple years later, I was like, fuck this mayonnaise. And then I just started doing stand up which was a much better fit for me. This group could have either said, you need to be more of a team player or you should just do stand-up. And when I found stand-up, it was great because I could just be my own boss. I didn't have to wait for a group and make sure we all had equal amounts of motivation. I was the director, producer, writer. And then that's when my drive was like not dependent on anybody else's. And that's when things started to happen for me. So it's great that they kicked me off and I'm grateful to them and it hurt. I would much rather have been hit by a car at the time.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm very interested by a couple of things about this story. One is that you described yourself as a bit controlly. And I wonder Mm -hmm. if you would still describe yourself like that. Do you think you have a need for control?
1: No, I don't. And I'm ultra collaborative I love to have other people direct the stuff that I write. I love to write with partners. I loved being the executive producer of Catastrophe, but I also love being like an employee actor in totally somebody else's thing. I do when it's scripts my rule for a script is you should read it and then hope that it gets produced. But if it didn't, you had a totally mature experience that they didn't need to like figure out on set or in the edit. I want my scripts to be airtight. And so on that I'm crazy, but in a nice way, because I just want to make something people want to watch. I'm not mean or weird, but I am exacting definitely.
0: Okay. And the other thing I wanted to ask you was about improv itself. So I had Deborah Francis White host the Guilty Feminist on this podcast Mm -hmm. years ago now. And she talked about, yeah, she's amazing. She talked about improv and what it taught her about failure, because it Mm -hmm. taught her that failure is essentially data acquisition. So when you fail on stage, you have learned something necessary about the audience and what you need to do differently next time.
1: Yeah, yeah, did yeah. improv
0: teach you about failure?
1: How about no? Um, I, I won't try to shoehorn my, like, I might later realize, oh, yeah, it did. But I can't think of anything. But what I will say is I now I love failure. Are you kidding me? You can't reach the raw material to build the staircase to success is failure. Yes. Oh, my God.
0: Yes. Well, I love when love people that.
1: now... Now, after having had some success, when I write something and people are like, no, we don't want it. I'm like, yeah, you know what I mean? Like, (laughs) try and stop me, you clown commissioner. You know what I mean? (laughs) 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 Literally, it's the same thing as if they handed me like a 10,000 pound check. Awesome. I love failure now. Oh, I luxuriate in it.
0: You genuinely mean that. That's amazing. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah.
1: I'm like, you just made me stronger. Whoops, too bad. You should have commissioned my stupid thing. But now you just made me dangerous.
0: Have you always had that? Or is that something that you've learned having been battered around a bit by life?
1: I have to be be battered around. Like you see the gray in my beard, you know? Like, yeah, it happened through repeated failure (laughs) that I did not seek out. But then you have to make the mental adjustment. It's good. It's all good. Success is great. Failure better. (laughs) I
0: need that on a t shirt and I need to merchandise it for this Uh, podcast. (laughs) You can get commission. (laughs) We're living in an era of information overload, we've more knowledge than ever before. But what do we do with it all? Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organise and rediscover the joy of play. It's a workspace designed not just for making progress, but for getting inspired. Notion is the AI-powered workspace where the everyday takes care of itself. Meetings have summaries... fail and start turning ideas into action. And when you use our link, you're supporting our show. Notion.com forward slash
1: fail. I'm Rachel Martin. After hosting Morning Edition for years, I know that the news can wear you down. So we made a new podcast called Wild Card, where a special deck of cards and a whole bunch of fascinating guests help us sort out what makes life meaningful. It's part game show, part existential deep dive, and it is seriously fun. Join me on Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR.
0: Let's move on to your second failure because the other person who emerges so, so strongly in your book is your wife, Leah, Mm -hmm. who sounds utterly incredible. And your second failure Mm -hmm. is that you did a shitty job as a husband for a good stretch in the early Mm -hmm. years of our marriage. Mm -hmm. Yes. Tell us about that, but start by telling us how you and Leah met.
1: Okay. So we met at a camp for people with disabilities in Massachusetts 18 years ago. A lot of people have cerebral palsy and they're teenagers and adults. So you're one-on-one with your camper. And we each had campers who had cerebral palsy. was on an island, Martha's Vineyard, off of Massachusetts. And we were both just like in transient periods of our life where we're like, oh, guess I'll go do this (laughs) for the summer and happened to meet each other. She was in the process of moving from Mississippi to Washington, D.C. And I lived in L.A. at the time. So neither of us had any reason that you saw coming to be in Massachusetts. And that's how we met with watching her take care of a teenage girl who had cerebral palsy. And I had a 12-year-old boy who had cerebral palsy, and she was in a bikini, and it was summertime, and we were swimming, and she was so funny and beautiful, but you know obviously kind and strong. It was a pretty good commercial for her as both a person and a partner. I was 27, she was 24.:
0: So you were in your 20s, and you got married, and then why were you doing a shitty job as a husband?
1: I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do or I hadn't admitted it yet meaning she met me I was like yeah I'm getting my real estate license and taking investing classes at like UCLA extension just stuff that is not me and she was like oh okay I guess that's him and and then I was like ah, no I you know a couple of years in I was just like I can't do this and she was like oh all right so she was the breadwinner as a school teacher while I'm going and doing stand up on unemployment, or worse, making less than unemployment when I'm working at like telemarketing near the airport. And so it definitely was like a bait and switch, not on purpose, but in function. I totally was like different than who the guy she thought she was marrying. And then even when success started to come, like with catastrophe and stuff, I was just such a total workaholic. The reason I mentioned it is because it didn't occur to me that a marriage could improve in strength and the joy that you derive from it and your ability to like do kind, consistently good things for the other person, you know? Another big adjustment I made is I realized I didn't know that you had to work really hard. On your relationship with your spouse after you'd had kids, I thought like, oh well, we've had the kids; they're children, so you have to feed them and clothe them. You know, we had to have kids for a while before I was like, oh wait, I have to give the amount of attention that I give to each kid to her as well, really. And at first, I was like, that's insane; she's a grown up. I like her, and I enjoy seeing her when I want to see her. You know, and I assume that's how she feels. But no way, man. Oh, my God, does that not work? And so being able to realize that was like a huge, amazing grace blast. I think big helps have been like being sober and applying some of the lessons of sobriety to my marriage. And then also Henry dying and being sick. We realized every member of the family is going to need not less love now, but more and more attention and more touch and stuff like that it's sort of crazy and and like so wildly immature and crazy to think that I was like, no, my wife is a nice person who I quite like. I find her very attractive and she's a good friend. We sleep in the same bed, but I don't have to, she doesn't need that much. Does she seriously, do I really? Cause we're already married and we have some kids like really? And when I discovered that the answer to that was like the biggest, loudest yes in the world, then of course she got happier, but I did too. So whoops. And then another lesson is that your marriage can get better after a period of doldrums or neglect. That's pretty cool. Because I think people love to pull the ripcord on relationships. What if you didn't? I don't know. Sometimes you should. I'm not saying everybody needs to hit freeze on wherever they are in their life right now and stay with you know a crazy person or whatever. But in our case... I enjoyed the second decade of our marriage considerably more than I did the first.
0: Wow. And you describe it as a moment of grace. Was it yeah. actually that? It wasn't that you went to therapy or that a friend sat you down and said, Rob, you're behaving like a douchebag. Like It was actually just a thunderbolt of grace.
1: Well, I don't take a lot of credit because Henry got sick. That changed things super dramatically. There is an alternate timeline where we're not together because I didn't get my act together. So what I credit it to is Henry getting sick. My wife said, I'll divorce you if you don't change how you operate in this marriage. And I was like, oh, well, I don't want that. And then I was like, okay, I'm gonna make some fundamental changes. And I did truly begin to implement them, but then not much later, Henry got sick. And then it was like, oh God, thank God I listened to my wife and started to make some changes so that the barest groundwork had been laid for what we're going to need to do now, which is going to be the fucking Olympics of marriage difficulty. That's what I credit to you. you can put that under grace, but unfortunately, and the big ingredient in that grace is Henry's illness, which would turn out to be fatal. I've used the word grace myself. Is it the best word for it? Will I be using it five years from now? I don't know. But it's surely an ingredient in the whole thing.
0: And you write about how during Henry's illness and all of that extensive invasive treatment he went through, you religiously stuck to date night with your wife. Mm -hmm. And you were very aware of how important that was because so many bereaved parents don't stay as a couple.
1: Yeah. A big thing that I thought was if I say I love this Henry, if I'm acting like I love him, telling people I love him, how would he feel if I didn't give his mother all of me? How would he feel if I neglected his brothers that he's so crazy about? So for me it was like it's proof in the pudding time. Yeah. Do I love him? Then I fucking well better take care of his mom and love her to death and his brothers, or I'm full of shit when I tell him that I love him. Do I really love him? Then I better give myself to the people that he loves most. That was a big part of it.
0: That is so fucking powerful. And you and Leah have another son now. How has that been for you?
1: So great. I thought I was broken. Notice I almost said we. I thought I was broken and that all my parental love had been allotted and that this new guy would be like an addendum or something, or that I would take care of him, you know, but I don't have the capacity to love again. And that immediately we were crazy about him from the second we saw him. In fact, Henry's older brothers were present when our youngest was born because they'd seen so much medical stuff with Henry that they asked if they could be there when the new guy was born. So I was like, "Yeah, okay, sure," you know. And uh, when he came out, my oldest was like, "It's another boy!" We all laughed, and he goes, "It's another boy, and we're gonna love him." <laughs> That's what the. How old was he then? Seven. <laughs> so did, uh, yeah, our youngest, I'm um, bananas about. I just can't get enough of him, and he's Henry's brother, you know. And yeah. he now that he's four, he asks about Henry all the time and talks about him. And having our youngest has just been the best.
0: There's this beautiful passage in your book, and I'm going to embarrass you, I think, because I would like to read the whole thing. (laughs) And it's about Uh why you're not worried about your own death because of the joy of birth. And you write, whenever someone tells me they're expecting their first baby and they're nervous, I tell them the following. Oh my goodness, that's wonderful. I'm so happy for you. Listen, of course you're nervous, but here's the deal. You're ready for all the bad stuff. You've been very tired before. You've been in pain before. You've been worried about money before. You felt like an incapable moron before. So you'll be fine with the difficult parts. You're already a pro what you're not ready for is the wonderful parts. Nothing can prepare you for how amazing this will be. There is no practice for that. There is no warm-up version. You are about to know joy that will blow your fucking mind apart. Happiness before this? Ha! Mystery? Lol. Wonder? Fuck off. You are about to see something magical and new that you have no map for. None. This is it are you ready for that? Are you? No, no, you're not. Also, please let me babysit when you're finally ready to let someone else hold your beautiful little nugget. First time's free, second time is £15 an hour. (laughs) And the reason I love that so much, Rob, is clearly you're making a profound point about death as well, saying that that's a great adventure that we, who knows, there might be joy there. But as someone who I've had recurrent miscarriages and I've seen lots of people have babies and there is so much mm. cultural noise about how mm. difficult that is and how exhausting and like roll on gin o'clock and there's not enough about the joy. Mm. And it's just so wonderful to hear that, to hear a man mm. express it. So I just want to thank you for that.
1: Oh yeah. Well, thank you. And thank you for telling me that. And I'm sorry that you've had to go through that. That's incredibly difficult. I can't say it better than I did there I think but that is absolutely how I feel and then yeah I do sort of flash it forward to well if we can't be prepared for birth and birth is so magical then you know we can't be prepared for death and everybody's doing it so (laughs) no need to (laughs) worry. That's the latest thing
0: death is having a moment. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Before we get on to your third failure I wanted to ask you about your boys, and how you manage what must be the very, very human impulse to feel so fearful for them, and to feel naturally overprotective, and how you kind of manage to balance that with being a parent who allows them to explore and have adventures.
1: I know the limits of my power. I've had a child die. It wasn't up to me. We did everything that we could So, I think there's a little bit of self deception when a parent thinks that they can choose if their child's going to get hurt or die or not. Yeah, of course, we put up guardrails where we can, but I don't know. I mean, I don't want to wrap them in cotton wool. They've had a terrible thing happen to them at a young age. I don't want to compound it by smothering them. So that's one factor. Also, my wife is a hillbilly and is an outdoor crazy enthusiast, tree climber. So my partner would definitely be, she'd be like, What are you doing? You know, if I said, Boys, wear a helmet when you go up a flight of stairs or whatever, you know. So I think we're a pretty good couple in that sense. And then we're outnumbered. There's three boys here. So Maybe we're getting some like exposure therapy from the fact that they're always getting hurt and, you know, <laughs> getting their heads. You're getting a note from school. They're coming home from school with a sticker on their jumper that says, I've had a head injury today, you know, all that <laughs> stuff. So, sure, I could be some smothering person. and I, I get the urge, but we just don't do it. A big cultural enemy of mine is the helicopter parent of the modern age. Very prevalent in London, very prevalent in Los Angeles, where we came from. And I don't like those people. I don't like the way that they are. And I don't want to be like them. So independence, the big thing we're trying to encourage, because that's such a gift to them. We show our kids what to do. By good examples. We show them what not to do with the bad examples we give them and then giving them the freedom to figure out some stuff. That's a real gift to give your kids. So nobody wants their kids to get hurt or have unnecessary bad things happen to them. But my wife and I have been humbled brutally and we know we can't protect them from everything. Mm. So we just do our best
0: Let's go back in time now to your childhood, because your third failure mm-hmm. is not yeah. one we've ever had before. And I'm really, oh my God. no, I'm really, really interested and also thankful that you've chosen this. Your third failure is your failure to control your bladder while sleeping until about age 11 or 12. Why did you choose this, Rob?
1: Because the feelings that you feel as a boy that age, in 1988, or whatever, are shame and fear of discovery by friends. And that was such a sort of heady blend of emotions to feel in adolescence. And many people do feel similar things for different reasons, you know, different secrets, different things about their home life they might be embarrassed about or ashamed of, or who knows what, that was a big ingredient of who I was at that age. So like hiding, secrecy, planning, cleanup, suterfuge were all like things that I really worked hard on at those ages. And now I know that just like I don't hate failure now, I now know that that stuff was an ingredient in making me who I am. So I don't hate it. Like I did back then. I now know that, Oh, you know, just like they put, I'm told in perfumes, you know, they'll put in like one weird element to like unlock the other smells in it. And so, okay, great. Like my mom very much encouraged me to do chores around the house. And so I'm good at those now when I choose to do them or, independent or driven but also there's a part of me now that understands shame secrecy fear being caught out and discovered and i wouldn't change that that kid was not a bad kid all our brains develop at different rates you know and who gives a shit you know what i mean now days and even when i was you to throw in the washing machine make the bed for that night who cares you know So the idea that it was a shameworthy historical thing, Michael Landon, famous American actor, as a kid, his mom would hang his wet sheets out of his bedroom window so people could see them. So he would run home fast from school so that he could take them down. And he became like a state champion runner. And that's how first people began to know who he was. You know, I can relate to that on a unbelievable level. You know, I mean, if I do something now that's funny or people see the fear in my eye that makes a joke funny in a movie or whatever, like where the hell do you think I learned how to do that? You know, hmm. in the grand scheme of things, it's not huge, but at that age, it felt that way for me and it's colored who I am now. And thank you. Thank you, Bladder Brain Network for that.
0: Totally fascinating. And I think... One of the other things that maybe links brilliant performers and artists is mm-hmm. an ability to know and to not even to remember, but still inhabit what it was to be a child. And it sounds like, yeah, you really have that. You can remember with immediacy,
1: yeah, that stuff was sort of seared into me, definitely. You know, having a gaggle of adolescent boys find out that I'd wet the bed on a camping trip or whatever which absolutely happened and just i mean oh god if you just could evaporate that's what i wanted to do
0: mm. what were you like as a kid aside from this like what were you like as a child
1: i always enjoyed creative stuff i loved drawing i loved comics mad magazine garbage pail kids collectible cards anything weird anything creative anything musical so The arts, I always loved. Yeah, I wasn't a very good athlete. I mean, I played sports and stuff, and I had friends and things like that. But happiest for me was, you know, doing creative endeavors as a kid, you know, being in chorus, being in a play, making my own comics, making up funny little skits and stuff like that. So, yeah. Oh, and I read a lot. And then at age 12, when I discovered alcohol, then I guess that might have been the end of my childhood, because then I really began to have problems with that from really age 12. And thank God that only lasted until I was 25. Because I still continued all the creative stuff. And I still participated in life. But the alcohol issue metastasized and and really got in the way of a lot of stuff. But I don't know. I'm more sensitive to people who get swept up in drugs and alcohol now with some years of both life and sobriety. You know, it's hard. It's hard to have all these feelings. You know, if there's something you can put in your body that'll make you feel fun and happy and cool temporarily, I get it. But it's fleeting. It's a an illusion and it can really hurt you, you know.
0: Well it's interesting to me that you say you discovered alcohol when you were twelve and that was also the age that you stopped wetting the bed. So do you think there was something about that, that it numbed you and so relieved you of that anxiety or whatever it was that was triggering that? Do you think that's connected?
1: I don't know, but here's the thing. I think I was stopping to wet the bed at that age. And then when I didn't drink, I never wet the bed again. But with alcohol, I would routinely drink until I pissed myself, until the age of 25. So there's a little fun fact. You know, it would be fun because we're getting near the end of the podcast if that was (laughs) like an Easter egg. You're like, for super fans, you can learn that he wet the bed (laughs) till he was 25.
0: It's actually a very good idea. I'll put that behind a paywall. (laughs) Uh You're right though. We are nearing the end. And I I can't end it on that note because I cannot recommend your book highly enough for anyone who is going through the shitstorm of grief but also for anyone who thinks they understand it, but doesn't. And for anyone who wants to help a person that they know who might be going through something, because Mm -hmm. it really does dismantle this beast of grief from the inside out. And Mm -hmm. I know that you've said elsewhere in a previous interview that you feel a bit of a responsibility being in the public eye to show people what Mm -hmm. grief looks Mm -hmm. like. Is that still accurate? Mm -hmm. You feel that responsibility?
1: Yeah, because being in the public eye or being famous or whatever is kind of like having the keys to a big like crane truck, one of those ones that they have to stop traffic so it can get around a corner. So it's not good or bad, but it is a massive responsibility. That crane truck could build a school if operated by someone who knows what they're doing. But if it's operated by somebody who doesn't know what they're doing, it could run over a bunch of kids on the way to a different school. So it's a responsibility. And I think it functions best when it's treated like that. So what do I know better than most? You know, grief at this point. There's a few other things, but grief is one of them. So if I'm here in the public eye and I have amassed some coping mechanisms and skills that I never wanted to have, but I got them then I do feel a responsibility to try and share them because of what other people have done for me. People have helped me immeasurably by sharing their experiences and letting me in. So, yeah, you got to return a favor. That's just sort of how life works. You know what I mean? It's like emotional hygiene. You got to let this stuff pass through you or you get blocked up and explode (laughs) or easy come, easy go. I I was given something. I give it to you.
0: And Rob, will you be writing more books? Because I would really like it if you did.
1: Thanks. I'll tell you what, I enjoyed writing this book so much more than I enjoyed writing the one I wrote nine years ago. So this is my second book. I enjoyed this one a lot more. I feel like I know more about writing books now, go figure, after having written a second one. So I don't know. I don't have any ideas for one right now. But After this one gets out there into the world, if something strikes me, then I will listen. So it's entirely possible. I mean, I guess, hey, probably, right? You know, if I uh, write two, I well write three.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And and I wanted to ask you, it's actually, it sounds like a boring question, but I promise you it's not. It's about what you're working on now. But the reason I want to ask you that Uh is because I wonder how your creativity was affected by Henry's illness and Henry dying.
1: I'm writing stuff like for TV that I hope will get made. So, always have irons in the fire there. So, scripts and stuff by myself and with others. And then I've been acting a lot, and there's a bunch of stuff in the can, some of which was delayed by the pandemic and stuff that is now filtering out. Yeah, I just had a movie come out called The Good House with Sigourney Weaver and Kevin Klein. And that was tremendous fun. That just came out in the U.S. I don't know if that's here yet. Aren't I a great promoter? I just finished a show called Bad Monkey that shot in Florida. That's me and Vince Vaughn, Meredith Hagner, Jody Turner-Smith, Michelle Monaghan. Bill Lawrence made that. He made Ted Lasso, and he adapted a wonderful Carl Hyasson novel called Bad Monkey. So that's the biggest thing I'm sitting on. I think that'll be out in the springtime. And then parts and movies that are coming out in the coming months. So did it affect your
0: creativity? Did you find acting almost easier because you don't have to be yourself?
1: It sounds strange to say. I definitely feel like a better writer now that I've been through terrible grief. I guess it might have made me a better actor. That's for other people to decide. What it did do is it made me realize actors gravitate between thinking they're like the most important people in the world or they're just human garbage that should just be steamrolled and, and then scraped off the pavement with a skillet and thrown into a second molten lava. Like actors either hate themselves or love themselves, you know, I don't do either of those things anymore. Now I'm like, oh, it's a job like any other job. It's not ridiculous. It's great. <laughs> Who doesn't want to watch TV shows and movies and it's, Awesome. I love them. I love to watch them. But it's also not like the people don't deserve the money and the awards. That's insane. So it's made me approach acting as just more of a craft that you learn, work at, get better at, go to work and be nice and kind and not have some crazy attitude. My favorite thing these days is to get hired by a director or a producer for a second time. That's when I'm like, yeah, you know. So just anytime I can put one of those beads on the string because I showed up on time, was nice, was prepared. You know what I mean? So I love to just be like a worker bee, big time. Mm.
0: Well, Rob Delaney, you are nice and you are kind. And you have (laughs) made this such a special interview in so many ways, but there is real generosity on your part at the core of that. And thank you for that. And we're so grateful that you are that crane truck delivering a necessary public service. So thank you so, so much for telling us about Henry and for coming on How to Fail.
1: Well, let me say to you that while we were experiencing some tech issues earlier, we, I, while I was experiencing some tech issues, I was like, "Uh," and I looked into our direct messages on Twitter and there hasn't been one for a very long time years. But the last one was you writing me when Henry died. And that's so wonderful that you did that because we don't really know each other well, you know, and you reached out and you said something and that was so kind of you. So just doing that, you know, and like, you know what, when you sent it, I didn't see it because of course I was my admin skills. I didn't answer an email for six months. And so, but I just saw that today and I thought, it made me so happy to dive into this interview to know that it would be with someone sensitive and kind like you. So whoops, you didn't know you'd be finding out you're a wonderful person today, but you are.
0: <laughs> oh, Rob, you're so lovely. I totally forgot we DM'd each other. I'm going to go back and read them all. Uh, you are a treasure. Thank you so, so much.